I just want to congratulate you that you have survived one year with Jeff Carlson. So, well done. Maybe that's been a good year for you. Maybe not. Uh, it's been a great year for me. <laughs> Mark, that was a little too loud. That was a little too loud. Uh, so grateful uh, for this church and to be here. Grateful for what God is doing, aren't you? Aren't you grateful? That, that one hour just really messes our clocks up, doesn't it? <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. You know what? That made me feel good about this message. It took the pressure off because I figure if it's not that good, you won't remember it. So, so we're, in, we're in good shape. We're in good shape. Uh, praise the Lord. I, that was a joke. That was a joke. Uh, praise the Lord. Hey, I, I just, I want to reiterate camp with Pastor Mark. Camp is where uh, I was filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a place where God confirmed calls to ministry, where God just transforms kids' lives uh, from young elementary. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit at element, in elementary camp or kids' camp, uh, and then it certainly had great, amazing moments with God as a teenager. And so look, if you want to give, I think the cost is $280 for a kid to go to camp. Uh, that's just the cost of doing business these days. And so if you'd like to sponsor uh, maybe a kid or maybe a half a scholarship, you could do, if you do the math, half of, a, of 280 is 140. Is that right? Okay. If you wanted to do like a half scholarship, I mean, we'll even take quarter scholarships if you want. So uh, if you'd like to do that, you don't, maybe you want to, uh, your kids went through and, and uh, had a great experience at camp or maybe never before, but you believe in this next generation, uh, you can give to Kingdom Builders and just market for camp. Uh, or Next Gen Scholarships is our official line, and we're going to do everything we can. There will not be a kid, a youth or kid at this church who does not attend camp if they want to. Every kid who wants to go to camp in any form, or even if I've got to write the check myself, will go to camp. Okay? So uh, that's my commitment to you. And moms and dads, if you can afford to send your kid to camp, please do so. Don't drain the budget when you can pay for it. But if you can't and you want your kid to go, don't be sheepish about holding them out because you feel weird about talking to the church about being the church. Can I just say that? Don't be a weirdo, okay? <laughs> You're not a weirdo. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but, but talk to us. Please talk to Pastor Mark Ashley, one of our youth sponsors, youth leaders, um, and let us know if you need some help. We will be glad I mean, over, don't steal our joy from being able to help uh, a student go to camp. And I believe that those kinds of investments never return void, but God will do amazing and powerful things in their life. You never know what kid's going to go and be transformed and become the next whatever. So thank God for, for what camp is, and I just encourage you to uh, pay attention to that. We are starting a new series today. Hopefully, everybody get your hand out. Uh, I had some room. I could not fit the prayer model. I'm going to write prayer models for most of these messages, I, won't, I say most because there may be a week, I just don't get to it. And if that's the case, I apologize ahead of time, uh, but I don't know what to tell you. There, uh, but I'm doing my best to get uh, prayer models for you. These are wonderful additions to your uh, regular devotional life. You can throw it in your Bible. Uh, I'll try to write a new one. Now, next week's a weird passage, so I'm not sure how to get a prayer model over the casting lots to elect Matthias, okay? I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to see if if it's doable. Uh, so there, yeah, anyway, so it's a great addition and a way for you to pray the scriptures 
uh, in, your, in your devotional life. You can take it, use it however you want to. Uh, but this week I had so much material uh, that I had a little, I had to go on two sheets. I always try to do it on one side. I did not succeed this week. So you've got some fill in the blank notes there on the back. Uh, that's the best I could give you this week. But uh, I, I hope to look at this, uh, this book of Acts and have consistent movement in our lives as we go forward. So we'll be in Acts for a while uh, and there'll be some some uh, other series and other things that come up. Uh, certainly if the Lord, here's my philosophy on preaching. I plan out the preaching, uh, but if the Lord speaks to my heart and says, I want you to go that direction on a given day or whatever, I will change course. You're my commitment to you. If God drops a word in my heart that is for this church in this moment, I will preach that word and I will push all the other stuff back. Does it make sense? So that's my commitment to you. Here's your commitment to me. You come every Sunday ready to eat the word of God and apply it to your life. I don't just want you to get fat on spiritual things, right? Let's not be overweight fat Christians. And I'm not talking about our physical body. I'm talking about our spiritual body. Let's take the word of God and while we devour it together and we eat a good meal in here, let's apply it to our life and let God transform us. Amen? Everybody commit to that? All right, like seven of you. Great. Great. So the book of Acts starts in Acts chapter one. If you, did you, I, I, I know I'm full of things today. Acts chapter one. And we're going we're gonna to look at the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. As I got into this, I think this passage could be about four different sermons, uh, but I'm going to just get it into one today. Uh, before we do that, I just want to give you just a little bit of background on the book of Acts, just so you kind of get the context. The, uh, Jesus has been crucified. Here's where we are in Acts 1.1. Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead, and now he's getting ready to ascend to the Father. That's the first thing that the author of Acts tells us about the ascension of Jesus. Now, the author of Acts is Dr. Luke. Uh, so Luke is the same guy that wrote the Gospel of Luke, and most scholars believe that he always intended to write a volume one and a volume two. And this, the book of Acts, is volume two. It's the story of the church up until the moment that the Apostle Paul uh, goes to his death, if you will, in, in the city of Rome. And so Dr. Luke is the only, I thought this was interesting, he is the only Gentile writer of the entire New Testament. All the other authors were Jews, uh, so not like you and me. We're all Gentiles, unless you are a biological Jew. And Dr. Luke was uh, like us. He was someone that certainly would probably not have followed Christ uh, during Jesus' ministry on the earth. Uh, maybe he had been around it here and there. What we know is Luke was a companion and a friend of the Apostle Paul. Now, what's interesting about that is Luke is, when Luke wrote his gospel, he, first of all, here's, this is important because it goes to the authority of the path of the scripture. Luke wrote within one generation of the actual events that took place. That's a huge deal. Do you know why? Let me give you one. How many of you believe that William Shakespeare existed? Not conspiracy theory people. Like you actually believe he was real. Like seven of you. Good, good, good. We're on, we're on good track. Um, the, the, the most recent manuscript we have that exists of like a Shakespeare play is 800 years after Shakespeare, not 800 years, 400 years after Shakespeare had lived, 400 years. That means that 
Luke writing within 30 years of the death of Jesus and the story of Jesus' ministry is a contextual or a uh, not quite, he's not a firsthand account, but he's definitely a secondhand account and he's writing what the disciples were telling him, the stories and the things of God, the things that Jesus did. Look what he says in verse one, just really quick. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and to teach. That was his goal in the first book. Well, we come to the book of Acts, and uh, somewhere along the way in this first few years or, or months, probably months of the, of the church being born, Luke came to faith in Christ. And Luke comes to Jesus uh, and faith in Jesus, and he writes the book of, while well, he wrote the book of Luke, uh, hearing stories and from firsthand sources, he wrote the book of Acts in real time. He experienced the stories we have, particularly the stories about the Apostle Paul. I want you to think about that. We have some miraculous, crazy things that Paul tells us happened to him. Like when he was stoned and left for dead and God raised him up. Like when he was in prison and the prison bars were open, the prison jail was open by miraculous work of the angel. So I'm just saying to you that through most of Paul's ministry, Luke was present in real time to write those stories for us. And so he was there when those days happened. We have no record in the book of Acts of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which still would have been important to the first century Christians. Uh, we know that Paul died or was martyred somewhere between 65 and 69 AD. And so we believe that the book of Luke was finished, or sorry, the book of Acts was finished somewhere before 65 AD. It ends with Paul in prison uh, in Rome, but Un, uh, what's the word in the Greek is unhindered. He is unhindered in his preaching of the gospel. That's a big deal. And some people believe that uh, Luke finished the book of Acts that way on purpose. He was saying that the gospel as it goes forward into the world will not be hindered by anything that man could, I mean, think about how they viewed Caesar and the Roman Empire. It was all-encompassing and all-powerful at that time. And, and Luke says, look, even the Roman Empire cannot stand up to the gospel. It's unhindered. So look, I, I think about that in the context of our culture today and the things we're facing. I stepped on somebody's phone. I don't know whose phone this is, but I might break it. Sorry. You can come get it if you want. I might spit on you, though. Uh, <laughs> there he is. Oh, it's Gina's phone. Oh, you're taking one for the mother-in-law. Good for you. Good for you, good for you. <laughs> but I think about that idea in the context of what we're facing today in real life, right? And I think like the, they're, they're writing all these articles about how the church is gonna be diminished and all these problems are coming to the church because people are gonna leave the church and people are gonna stop giving. I mean, it's all this stuff and I'm going, no, the church of Jesus Christ is unhindered in its advancement around the world, amen? Amen. Just like it was at the end of the book of Acts, so it is today in the kingdom of God and the church. So praise the Lord. There's you a, just a little snapshot of what's happening in the world as Luke puts pen to paper or papyrus or whatever he wrote on uh, to write this book. So we're going to look at the first 11 verses. And, uh, and I just really think uh, this. Have you, ever, have you ever made a promise to yourself or to someone else? How many of you have broken a promise in your life? Okay, so I tell you, I'll tell on myself, uh, when I was, I think I was 17, and I was, I was driving down the road a little bit fast, 
Anybody been there? Nobody does that. I know. I know you guys are exactly. And I think I was going 57 in a 30. And that's a lot. That's a lot. I know. Don't, it, the statute of limitations has expired, okay? Uh, but, you know, it wasn't very long, and I saw the lights behind me, and I pulled over, and, and the, the police officer, very, very nice guy, came up and just gave me a warning. I was so thankful. As soon as he left and went back to his, to his car, I said these words, I promise I'll never speed again. <laughs> Anybody ever done that before? It lasted about two blocks. <laughs> I promise I'll never speed again. Uh, or, or your kids say, I'll never lie to you again. How many of your kids have promised things like that to you? And it's, you know, by your third kid, you just kind of laugh in their face about it, right? Because you know it's coming. I mean, pretty much any time a politician opens their mouth and makes a promise, we know that's not happening. We promise when we get into trouble with credit card debt, and certainly I, I've been there and many of you have been there, we promise to stop using our credit cards. Oh, but it was such a great deal, you know? We make these promises. Our promises to ourselves and really to others are finite and flawed, aren't they? Like we can promise things all day long. We can, we can even swear. In fact, the Lord has a verse in the, in the Bible where he says, don't swear about anything, not like cussing swear, but don't swear like I promise I'm gonna, don't make promises by anything, because you're a flawed, fine, did you know you're flawed? I don't know if everyone in here knows that. Did you know you're flawed, and you're a finite human, and you can't figure everything out, and you don't always have it all together, and ju just because you make a promise to yourself or to someone else does not guarantee that you will keep that promise. I, I'm not saying your motive won't be to keep it. You just can't guarantee that you'll keep it. Amen? Because we are flawed people. But God's promises, come on, come on. The difference between man's promises and God's promises is incredible and vast. Why? Because God's promises can always be trusted. He cannot leave a promise unfulfilled or pretend that he didn't make it because his character will not allow it. It's how we know at the end of all things, Israel will be redeemed. Because he promised to redeem Israel, to redeem Jacob, to bring them back to a right relationship with God. It's why we know that though they rejected the Messiah when he came the first time, many of them will actually receive the Lord at uh, Jesus Christ as their Messiah before this whole, thing's this whole thing comes to an end. There's about, you ever wonder how many promises there are in the, in the word of God? There's somewhere around, there's lots of different numbers out there, but I'm going with this one. There's somewhere around 7,500 promises promises of God to people, to humanity, to people groups, to nations, and to each of us in the word of God. And here's kind of where I conclude. If we can not conclude the sermon, just, yeah. You're like, oh man, this is great. If we can trust one promise of God, if you can trust, here's the thing. If you can trust God for your salvation, one promise of God, you can trust God for every promise. You can trust God for all of the promises. So I believe this, uh, Acts opens up here with four promises of God to the church, capital C church. Uh, one of those promises has been fulfilled. Two of those promises are being fulfilled and one of them has yet to come. So let's look at the four promises of God in these first few verses of Acts chapter one. So the first one in your blanks and your paper is this, the pro he gives us the promise of life. 
He gives us the promise of life. And this is one that is being fulfilled right now. Look what he says, uh, verse two, until the day was taken up. He, he, he taught, uh, Luke wrote about these things, about all Jesus did until he was taken to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days, this is the key, verse three, during the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved, everybody say proved, he proved to them, thank you for the participation, in many ways that he was actually alive. He wanted to make sure they knew this wasn't a farce. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Luke understood, why does Luke record that idea? He understood that the validity of Jesus being alive, the resurrection had to, was vitally important to the future of the church. He knew that if there was question marks about whether Jesus was alive, uh, whether there were issues with that or whatever, that the whole thing could fall apart and anybody who believed in Jesus was simply wasting their time. He had to build the case because if this was real, if Jesus truly is risen from the dead, then it changes everything about this world everything about this world. So I thought, what are the evidences of Jesus' resurrection? I know it's not Easter Sunday, uh, but let's pretend that it is. The, uh, this is the, the evidences of the resurrection. Well, the most obvious one is the empty tomb. Like the tomb was empty. They put a, I don't know if you remember the story, but they put a big rock in front of the tomb that really kind of wasn't easy to move or anything like that. In fact, it was moved probably by a couple of angels who then stood guard after Jesus rose from the dead. His clothing, his cloth that he was buried in weren't just found in the tomb, but were found neatly folded. Listen, teenagers, Jesus folded his laundry. <laughs> he didn't have to do it. He could have chucked it in the corner, but he folded it up and laid it nicely on the thing. You can do the same. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. That's a, an evidence of the resurrection, the empty tomb. I think what's even more compelling, though, are the appearances of Jesus. Uh, we have firsthand, not second, not third, not hundreds of years later, we have firsthand accounts in the Gospels, in 1 Corinthians 15, in Acts chapter 1, and in a couple of other places of Jesus appearing to a group of people at one time, or several people at one time. He appeared to them over and over. I, I think of another, another evidence in this vein is Doubting Thomas. Remember Doubting Thomas? And he walks to Doubting Thomas, and he says, Put your hands in my, or put your, put your hand on my wounds and my side and on my hands, and I'll prove to you that I'm alive. In fact, I, Jesus said to the disciples, I am not a ghost as you think that I am, because a ghost doesn't have a body. That's what he said to them. He said, I'm solid. I'm, I'm like flesh and blood, even though he was some kind of flesh and blood, I guess. James was a skeptic. You know what I love? Let me go back to Thomas. You know what I love about Thomas. Here, Thomas was the doubter, and many people are doubters, and that's okay. You can be a doubter. But you know what? You know how convinced Thomas became? You know what Thomas did with the rest of his life? He went to the nation of India. I don't know what the nation was called then, but he went to India, and he planted churches all over the, all over the subcontinent and, uh, of India, and he was martyred there for so He died for his faith there. Do you know that the church, one of the churches that he planted still exists today, traces its lineage back to Thomas? So you're telling me a guy who didn't believe it in the first place some, somehow was duped into believing it and then gave his life or something like that? 
People, people don't do that. I think of James, Jesus' brother. If you will, none of the disciples knew Jesus better than James. And James, uh, we don't have evidence that he doubted, but we have evidence when Jesus was doing ministry that he may have doubted. Remember what happened with, uh, who is this guy? Why are you doing this stuff, Jesus? Can't you just come back to the family business and make furniture? Like, stop it. What are you doing? James was in that, that group with his mother, but something happened to James so much so, again, his skepticism turned around and he pastored the church in Jerusalem until he was martyred later in the book of Acts. I think of the appearance uh, uh, to, to Saul slash the apostle Paul in Acts chapter nine, and then again later in the book, how the Lord appeared to them and showed them who he showed Saul who he was and what he wanted him to do. I think of the martyrdom of all the apostles. Think of the martyrs, martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter six. Why would Stephen go to his death for something that wasn't real? Why would the 11 apostles, 10 of, which were, uh, uh, 10 of which were martyred for their faith, why would they all go to their death, be crucified upside down, be sawn in two, be su- and suffered so much? I think of Hebrews, the end of Hebrews chapter 11, where it says some were sawed in two, some were destroyed, some met the sword, some conquered kingdoms. There's like good and bad in the whole thing. But why would people do that if it wasn't a real legit deal? Have I convinced you? <laughs> Jesus is alive, and not the least of which we can say the evidence is, I I heard this story from, uh, I shouldn't even tell it, the least of which, (laughs) I'm moving on, the least of which is what he's done in you. If the least evidence that you have of the resurrected Christ is simply the things he's done in your life, that's enough evidence. W.A. Criswell said, you ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. That's how he lives. Jesus is alive. John 20, he said, uh, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, you believe because you have seen. And here, this is for us. Blessed are all those who believe without having seen. If you've never seen Jesus, if he's never walked into your room and shown himself to you like he did the apostle Paul, can I just say you are even more blessed than the apostles because you never saw him and yet you've believed. That's huge. He gives us the promise of life. What kind of life does he promise? I think I thought of three things in scripture. One, eternal life. That's awesome. Number two, abundant life. Doesn't he say he gives us abundant life? Now that doesn't mean necessarily a large bank account, a big house and a good car. How many of you know abundant life often works outside of just those parameters? You got to think a little bit wider. And I think thirdly, the kind of life he gives us or he promises us, is an effective life. So what's the thing for us? What's the thing for us? What does this matter to us? I think this question right here is one you need to answer for yourself. Oh, I know you're in church. I know you're at least going through the motions of this Christianity thing. But do you really believe he's alive? Do you really believe he's alive? And here's a better question. If you say yes to that, does your life reflect it? Does your life reflect the belief that he's alive? See, when I read the book of Acts and I look at the things the apostles did, their lives reflected the idea that they fully believed Jesus was alive. Would you say that's true? Does yours? Does mine? Your answer to that question 
is kind of everything, isn't it? It's kind of everything. We have the promise of life. Second thing I want you to notice from Acts chapter one, we have the promise of empowerment. And this is the one, of the, the one promise here that's been fulfilled. Acts ver, uh, chapter one, verse four, once, that, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the father sends you the gift he promised. Now you and I know who's the gift. The Holy Spirit. He says, John, verse five, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is so interesting to me. And when we get down to the next one, we'll see that the, the disciples had asked him, maybe in this conversation, maybe a separate one, but they'd asked him like, hey, now are you going to kick out the Romans and set up your kingdom? Like he's resurrected, he's defeated death, and their finite mind is still in this vein that this is an earthly thing that he's going to do. And so Jesus says to them, guys, you've got to go to Jerusalem and you've got to wait. And why is this important? Because something changed in Acts 2-4. Something changed in the hearts and the lives and the outlook and the ideas of the disciple. They went from believing that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom to fully understanding his whole point was to have a heavenly kingdom. Was to have a kingdom made up of all tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. That happened on the day of Pentecost on Acts 2, 4. And here we have the promise of empowerment happening for the disciples. Jesus is quoting uh, John the Baptist here, where where John the Baptist in John 1 says, uh, I baptize with water, but there's one among you who, who is mightier than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so here in Acts 1, Jesus quotes that passage, and I kind of think, like we know from, from John 1, that James and John were in the crowd that day. They were there, and they were hearing, because they were followers of John, and they're listening to this, and a, a couple of verses later, they're walking along, and John says, hey, that's the guy I was talking about before. He's the Lamb of God. Go follow him. Stop following me. Go follow that guy. And James and John, I just have to believe When Jesus quoted this, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. James and John went, oh, just in their mind, they immediately remembered that prophecy from John the Baptist from three or four, three years ago when John the Baptist said, hey, there's one greater here than me. And Jesus, I I believe the Lord looked at him and winked. That's what I think happened. I made that up. It's not in the Bible, but that's what I think happened. He went and he said, this is what John was talking about, guys. Do you remember? Do you remember? The, do you, are you putting the pieces together of how this thing is going to go? He promised them empowerment. So the thing for us, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all flesh. Joel chapter 2 and chapter 3 has been fulfilled. Anyone who asks can receive the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you can earn or you can talk God into. It's something we ask for, and through his faithfulness, the Lord gives it to us. So I wonder this. Here's the thing for us. Why do so many of us walk around allowing the power of the Holy Spirit maybe to operate in our lives while we walk around Connection Point Church, but when we get outside of here, we struggle to let the Holy Spirit operate in our lives? Because that's the thing, isn't it? Can I just say to you in the book of Acts, I don't think we have any miracle recorded in the book of Acts that actually happened inside of a church building. I think every miracle that we have in the, I mean, just go to Acts chapter three and you look at James and John as they're walking in, uh, they're walking in the city and they walk by Gate Beautiful and the guy says, please give me some money. And he say, I don't got any money, but what I do have, I'll give you. Guess what they had? They had guts. 
And they had the power of the Holy Spirit operating in their lives. Amen? Do you? Do you operate and live your life with the promise of empowerment active daily? The Holy Spirit working not only in you, but acting and working through you. Is that a daily occurrence in your life? And look, the reality is for many of us and probably most of us, maybe all of us, the answer is, man, not as much as I want. Rhetorically, how many of you would say, not as much as I want? Man, I want more of that. You know what? I think this studying this book is a great opportunity for you and I to begin asking God to help us have more of that. God, help us walk greater in the gift and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's already been fulfilled. Of these promises, it's the only one that's already been fully fulfilled. It's already done. Can I just say, there's no more of the Holy Spirit to yet be poured out on the earth. It's all been poured out. God's not holding back some in reserve. It's all here. We just have to live into it and move into it and allow it to transform us to be men and women empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's the promise of Jesus. The third promise I want you to see is this. This is a being fulfilled promise. It's the promise of his global kingdom. It's the promise of his global kingdom. And really, it's a universal kingdom, if you will. I don't know if there's, you know, we, never mind. Acts verse six. So I was going to say, I don't know if there's any alien life out there and Jesus died for them too or what. I have no idea. I just know this, this kingdom is universal. It's everywhere. Amen. Come on. You with me? Go watch your own conspiracy theories. I, it just the kingdom of God is not limited to a nation or to a people or to a certain DNA type or whatever. It's for everybody. So verse six, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, when is, uh, when, Lord, has the time come for you uh, to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He said, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, uh, and they're not for you to know. You know what he's saying to them? Stop worrying about how this whole thing's going to shake out. Can I kindly and lovingly say that to you? Stop worrying about how this whole thing's going to shake out. Stop worrying about what's going to happen to the United States. Stop worrying about what's going to happen to China and North Korea and all these things. I'm not saying be ignorant. I'm saying don't let that deal uh, dictate how you're feeling and what's going on in your life. Let's focus on the things that are eternal. And the thing that is eternal here is the global or the universal kingdom of God. He says, he says I don't know. You don't need to know the days and times. In fact, he says the Father alone knows. Jesus doesn't even know. The Father's kept that from Jesus. He's not telling you, or, and he's not telling uh, uh, Rabbi Khan, and he's not telling uh, John Hagee either. Come on. If he's not telling Jesus, he's not telling those guys. So stop buying the books. Okay, I'll move on now. He's like, guys, quit worrying about how this whole thing's going to go to down. Instead, you're going to get power from the Holy Spirit. And you're going to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even the very ends of the earth. And you're going to be witnesses of the resurrection of God and witnesses of the power of God in your life and witnesses of all that God is doing around the world. You're going to take what he's done in you and you're going to be witnesses to that fact all across the world. That's the, look, he's not saying that just to the 11 or however many were there that day. He's saying that to you and me. 
He's saying, guys, stop worrying about how the whole thing's going to shake out. Instead, how about we focus on being empowered by the Holy Spirit and being witnesses in our Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the very ends of the earth, wherever the world would take us, wherever the Lord would take us. Let's be witnesses. Here's the thing for us. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit is available to us, and it's two-purposed. So we can live for God, Galatians 5, we can keep in step with the Spirit, we can walk after the Spirit, we can be men and women who keep in the Spirit, we say no to the works of the flesh, and we work into the fruit of the Spirit. Can I just say, uh, the gr- a greater evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit in your life, much more important to me than whether you can speak in tongues or not, is if the fruit of the Spirit is oozing from your life. I want you to speak in tongues. And Paul said it too. He said, I want everybody to speak in tongues. That's part of the the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want everybody to speak in tongues. But brothers, I would rather you be Christians and you love and have joy and have peace and long suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance more than you speak in tongues. Don't misunderstand. I want you to speak in tongues. There's power in that. I'm sure we'll talk about that when we get to Acts 2. But it's not the only thing that we are empowered to do and for. Pentecost for several years has focused too much on those things and not enough on the other, not enough on the other. So it's to help us live for God. And then secondly, it's to help us be witnesses like the early church was of his resurrection. I love this revelation seven. Here's how we know we're to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Revelation seven, verse nine. After this, I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every, every, everybody say every, Every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. Can I tell you what it doesn't say? Every race. You know why? Because there's only one. There's only one. Somehow science redefined it, but there's really only one race. There's just different people groups that we look different, we smell different, we act different, we have different, pro- whatever, we're different, and the Lord addresses that. He says, look, every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, we're all going to be there, guys. We're all going to be there. If you've got any uh, racism in your heart, deal with it, bro, because you're going to have everybody there. It says in the New Testament, you can't say that you love God and hate a brother. If you hate a brother, the love of God is not in you. So look, I'm not saying anybody has that, but if you've got any of that and you know it, you better deal with it on this side of heaven. Man, I'm like frosty today. We gotta be witnesses because everybody's gonna be there. I love what it says. He said, they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the lamb. Thank you, God, for the people that will be in heaven. It's a universal kingdom. It's a global kingdom. The last thing I want you to see. And this is the promise that's yet to be fulfilled. It's the promise of his return. Verse 9 says this, after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud. While they were watching, they, uh, and they could no longer see him. There's a key little phrase right here, as they were straining to see him. That's a key little phrase for me. Because like, they're not just standing at the airport waving as the plane takes off, you know. Hey, see you later. And then like, let's get some Chick-fil-A. I mean, that's not how this went. They're like, can you still see him? 
Like they're strange. Why? Because they did not know what was next. Jesus didn't tell, what did he say? The only command he gave them, wait for the promise of the Father, go to Jerusalem and wait. That's all he said. And so they're standing there straining to see him. I don't know what was in their hearts. We don't know if they had any conversation in that moment, but I bet you they did. Like, hey, John, can you still see him at all? You have better eyes than me. Can anybody see him? Is he still there? But he was gone. And it was so prominent. Their heart was so, you know, sort of attached and in need of the presence of Jesus in their life that the Lord had to send angels to tell them to go home. I mean, think about it. He says, they're straining to see him, and two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. God's like, dude, go down and tell them to go home. (laughs) Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? You look like idiots. I may have read that into the scripture. Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but here's the promise. But someday he'll return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Here's my question for you. I know I've made fun of them straining to see him, but are you straining to watch for him? Come on, that's a good question. Are you straining to watch for him? Jesus said when these signs begin to happen in Matthew 24, when these things begin to take place in the world, wars and rumors of wars and famine and pestilence and whatever, all these things begin to happen. Lift up your eyes to the east and watch your help is coming. He's coming back. Because here's the thing for us. How do we watch for him? What's our responsibility until he comes. I got four things. Number one, be faithful. Be faithful. And I'm going to add instead of fearful. Be faithful instead of fearful. What are you faithful to? You're calling the purposes of God living for him, making sure that God is, you're really honoring the Lord with your life. Please fix your eyes on Jesus like we're admonished through the scriptures. Do not grow weary in waiting for him to come back, but stay diligent, stay purposeful, stay faithful. Jesus said when he comes back, we better be found working. And not working like at our nine to five, but working for the kingdom of God, being witnesses in this world, being witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, being witnesses of his resurrection and certainly witnesses of what he's done in us. We better be found, when he comes back, we better be found working. Third thing, I I think we better be found obedient. We better be found saying yes to the things that God asks us to do. And and I think, you know, the blessed life is such a powerful thing for us. Uh, If you, you know, if you don't know, the blessed life is about way more than money. It's about way more than how you're spending your income and whether you're tithing and giving above. It's what are you doing with your life? That's the at the end of the day. What? How are you obeying God in the things that He puts in your hands? Whether that's your money or your time, or your energy, or whatever. And lastly, and I alluded to it already, be eagerly waiting. I think of this, this parable. I think of the parable of the 10 virgins. You know the parable of the 10 virgins in the gospels? And five of them came and they're like, meh. The master's been a long time in coming and they get busy doing other things and they forget to put oil in their lamp 
And so when the master comes, they have no way to light their lamp and they're, they're left out. Only five of those virgins, so 50%, they were all invited. They were all part of the wedding party. Can I just say that in here? And I, and I don't know if Jesus has given us a ratio that like when he comes back, only 50% of the church is actually gonna be ready and waiting eagerly for the return of Christ. That's a scary number, isn't it? If 50%, that means 50% of us could miss it because we didn't keep oil in our lamps. I, mean, I just want you to think about that. Because we didn't keep oil in our lamps, we weren't waiting eager for the coming of Christ, for the return of the Lord. Eagerness is a certain kind of waiting. It's a certain kind of anticipation. It's a certain kind of living on purpose. What's all this for? Scriptures full of promises from God, full of them, 7,500 of them, but, all, but I'm gonna give you one more promise that's not in Acts 1, but I think it's where all this culminates, and it's this, it's the promise of judgment. Because you, you know, at the end of the day, when Jesus comes back, he's got a global kingdom. He's empowered his people. He's doing all these wonderful things in our lives. He's got it all. It's all right there for us, but where's it leading? It's not leading to just better lives. It's not leading to just good things. It's leading to judgment. Are you with me? Here's how Jesus himself put it in Matthew 25. And I want you to listen to this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels will come with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, to the sheep, come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will say, Lord, when did we? You know what I love about that? They didn't even know they did it. Lord, when did we? When did we do this? When did we clothe them? When did we invite you in? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we give you something to drink or show you hospitality? And Jesus said, the king will say, I will, I will I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, you were doing it for me. I wanna be in that judgment, don't you? Because there's another judgment that comes in verse 41 says the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, <laughs> away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. You know what's sad about that? Hell's fire was not even meant for us. prepared for the devil and his demons for I was hungry and you didn't feed me I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home I was naked and you didn't you didn't give me clothing I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me and they will pray Lord when did we ever see you like that we don't remember you know what that indicates somebody who's not watching and waiting for the return of the Lord they're doing their own thing they're living their own life they're chasing their own desires and their own passions 
and the Lord will answer. I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me and they will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous will go to eternal life. So here's the question. Which side will you be on? Which judgment will you be participating in? Because I just want you to know it will be one or the other. There isn't a side judgment for people that were kind of in between. You're either all in or you're all out. And I believe that's a word of the Lord for some of you today because some of you have been trying to navigate the middle ground. You've been trying to kind of eh, be in when you felt like it. And when you didn't feel like it, you were out. When you had other things to do, when it was more important to do something else and the Lord is bringing it to a head and saying this, if you want the promises of God, if you want God to give you life, if you want empowerment, if you want strength, and if when you get to judgment, you want to be with the sheep and not the goats, you better decide today to be all in. You better choose today who you'll serve because that's what it's all about. That's what all this comes down to. Who are you going to serve? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of the Lord this morning. Thank you for the challenge of the word of the Lord. I thank you for the promises of God that are yes and amen. God, that there's no promise that we can't trust. There's no no thing that could happen in our life that would negate God us from the promises of God except to walk away from you, except to choose, God, to not be in the judgment with the sheep but to, but to side with the goats. And so, Lord, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would initiate right now to us, that you would speak clearly to those hearts that need to hear and need to understand and need to be transformed. So here it is with heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around. Maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, you know what, Pastor Jeff, I'm, I, maybe you're all the way in with the goats. Like if you're honest with yourself, man, you are running with the goats all the time and that's just where you land. And today, you know, if you wanna be in the promises of God, you gotta change teams. You gotta take off the goat jersey and you gotta put on the, the, the sheep jersey and you're ready to do that this morning. Others of you have tried to toe the line right in the middle. You tried to be part of the sheep when it felt right in your life, and then when it didn't, you went ahead and went over with the goats, and you've lived on both sides of that line. And maybe even right now, you're living on both sides of that line, and you're trying to make it work either way. And God is saying to you this morning, he's saying to you this morning, choose you this day, choose today, pick today. No more middle ground. If we're gonna do this thing, if you're gonna be part of the things of God, choose the things of God and say no to the things of the world. If I'm talking to you in this room at all, anybody in this room, those of you online, I want you to lift your hand right now to the Lord and I want you to say that to the Lord, signifying by your hand, you wanna choose him. Thank you, thank you. Others, thank you, thank you, thank you. About a dozen hands, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Here's what you need to know, my friends. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. You can have peace with God today and be fully in line for all the promises of God, including the inheritance of his kingdom. That's yours today. I wanna to ask everybody in the room to stand with me.
and I'm gonna pray a prayer. If you raise your hand, I want you to, uh, I don't believe in the repeat after me prayer. I want you to pray for yourself. And I just simply want you to ask God to be Lord in your life, to become the first and the only, that you will serve him, that you'll stop being a goat and you'll be all the way in for a sheep. And you know what that means, my friends. Those of you I'm talking to, you know exactly what that means for you. You know the relationships you have to change. You know the habits that have to shift. You know the things you have to begin to cut off. It's not a mystery. So as I pray, I want you to pray for yourself. Can, can we all pray right now? Can we all commit to the Lord? Father, you, you hear our heart. And so God, we commit to you. We give you all that we are. God, we take away, God, the worry and the things of our lives, Lord, that put us in that category with the goats. We don't want that anymore. We want to cut it off through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we could fully live in the fruit of the Spirit and the walk after you, God, with full hearts and full hope for judgment to come. God, that we would look forward to judgment because we know on that day we'll inherit the kingdom of God. Our inheritance is vast and it's great. So Lord, I pray those praying sincerely today that you would help them move over, God, to the other team to take off, Lord, that old jersey, take off that old self, that old being, and begin to put on Christ, be clothed in righteousness, walk after you. Not gonna do it perfect every time, God, but we can walk after you with all of our heart, our soul, and our strength, and our mind. God, may it be done, I pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, thank you, Lord. The enemy of your soul only has power you give him. Don't give him power. Amen? Amen. We're going to worship before we go this morning. I want to open the altars. If you want to come and do some business with God, you've got things to say to him, and he's got things to say to you. These altars are open. You can come down as Pastor Jim and our team leads us, and then Pastor Jim will dismiss us before we go. Let's worship the Lord, and let's solidify these things God has said to us this morning. Amen.